Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by B. John Namadi on July 4th, Lord's Day Service. All right, I'm just going to get started. So the last three weeks, the previous three weeks, we talked about apologetics, not really in a systematic way, and and unfortunately we're not going to do that today either. Uh, But what we've done is just look at various instances of how apologetics arguments could be used. The first week was a critique of a philosophical uh, stance, which is a reductionist stance which turns out to be almost every theory other than Christian, uh, a Christian worldview is reductionist. And so that actually falls into a class of apologetics called uh, presuppositional apologetics, where you're essentially critiquing the apologetic, uh, the the worldview, going into their worldview and saying, my friend, it doesn't work, you know. This kind of a, uh, these kinds of talks where we talk about Darwinism or uh, you know, cosmology or something like that, they are a different kind. They are, they're kind of be, could be used in a, in a presuppositional way or this other way called evidentialist. And those, in, uh, those Christians who are presuppositional apologetics advocates, they criticize, and I agree with them, they criticize evidential apologetics because evidential apologetics asks the, the unbeliever to be the arbiter of whether the evidence is good or not. They get to sit back and just, just critique. So what, why do we do evidential, uh, evidential apologetics? Well, Cornelius Van Til, who was a big proponent of presuppositionalism, the one that critiques, he says evidences are great but they're great for, for strengthening the believer, understanding that things are not only okay, but actually the, the created order points to, points to uh, the creator himself. But also, I think that evidences can be used in a presuppositional way, and in some ways we do that because we say, if you look at this the way you are, if you look at the evidences or the, 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 the universe the way you are looking from your standpoint, then you've got some serious problems with the evidences. And so um, I'm just going to put that out there as being aware that these different ways of looking at things are there. And if we were, if, if the Lord grants that we do this again, we will probably then go ahead and look at things more systematically than, than this. But so what have we done the last three weeks? Uh, we did Uh, a critique of reductionism, then we looked at uh, basically evidence for the created order from from astronomy and astrophysics. Last time we did uh, in biology. Today we're going to do physics and cosmology. And so, uh, but I felt like uh, some some questions that were asked of me last week, I felt like I I, I didn't really summarize the, the points properly at the end of the Darwinist, Darwinism. So here's my attempt at a summary. This is the summary of the last talk, that, that Darwinism doesn't have an explanation for the basic aspects of biology, actually. 
It doesn't explain the origin of information, and it has not just doesn't explain, it has no resources to explain it. It has, doesn't explain the origin of organization. Every living being is highly organized. And it doesn't explain irreducible complexity. Now, I would say that information and organization, those are really fundamental. Irreducible complexity is important, very basic, very, very important as well. And that's not to say that this is an exhaustive list, but as a minimum, those are already fatal to explaining origin of species. In addition to that, we took a sort of a detailed quantitative look at uh, what Darwinism can do. And the conclusion was for long-term, that the long-term improvement of species fails under a Darwinism scenario. In Darwinism, you know, you're saying natural selection acting on random mutations confers an advantage over and over and over again, and each step you're climbing this mountain. The problem is that the mountain you're climbing, it turns out to be a rugged landscape, and Darwinism, the Darwinist scenario is a blind scenario. So it climbs, in other words, species that are, or uh, uh, you know, children that are, have some sort of a mutation that somehow confers an advantage, they can only, there's only an advantage locally. They don't know the big peak over there. They don't see Mount Fuji. They're over this little hill and they climb it and they go, I guess that's it. They don't know that other thing is there because the, and the mutation rates don't allow it. That's the natural selection part. The random mutation part basically um, Yeah, the random mutation part has the fundamental problem that mutations, first of all, only break things. Mutations don't fix things. Uh, mutations also are, have to be low rate. They have to occur at a low rate. If mutations occurred at a high rate, we, will all, we would all have various genetic diseases. We would be sitting here with tumors and head, two heads and you know, we'd have serious problems. You have to have those mutation rates exceedingly low for biological you know, uh, offspring to, to, to do well. Once they're that low, though, random, random mutations just don't do the job that Darwin wants them to do. So, so we made the case that over, over generations life, they only degrade life, and they occur in rates that are too low to be of any help to anything but the most simple life forms like bacteria. And in this sense, I said that time doesn't heal the wounds of Darwinism. But a very good question was asked by Brian. But then my last argument seemed to make an escape, uh, a case that time was also a factor. And, uh, and I had not closed that logical step really well. What I, what I meant by the last part, where we talked about protein-protein binding sites, and the fact that the, chance, the chances and the time required to develop a new three-protein binding site would be prohibitively long, is that even if we, for the moment, suspend our critique that, that all the, uh, any mutation is necessarily deleterious, that, 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 that makes things worse, if we just suspend that, just say, how long does it take anyway, even if it was supposed to be good for you? and it takes prohibitively long. So it's sort of like, it wasn't my dog, it didn't bite you, besides you kicked it first. It's, it's problematic at every ground. It, the chance rate, the rates are low, when they occur, they degrade, and so th there's just nothing th there to, to help Darwinist scenarios. 
And the important takeaway I want you to keep, especially in light of today's talk, is that Darwinism, Darwinist mechanism is not helped by a, by a universe that's billions of years old. Okay, so time does not help Darwinism. And, but today's talk, we are gonna be talking about time, and, and I'm coming from an old Earth perspective, and what I'm gonna say, though, is that whereas time does not help biology, time is actually the enemy of cosmology. In other words, old universe didn't help biology at all, and now we're gonna, we're gonna find that in, when you go to physics and cosmology, the old universe just destroys a, a materialist picture of, of the universe, and we'll see how that works. Well, we're gonna do this from the standpoint of looking at cosmology, which, by the way, is similar to the word cosmetology, and they're actually related for a good reason. Uh, cosmology is the study of the makeup of the universe, and cosmetology is the study of makeup. Uh, that's, I know that's kind of cute. Uh, no, but both of them are about order and arrangement. And so that's the cosmos is, is, a, is a statement of, of order. So they're actually related. Cosmology is the study of on the, on the longest time periods or on the largest, grandest scale, what, are the, what is the makeup of the universe and what does it look like? And it turns out physics comes in in a big way. And I'm going to start with a 1973 conference in Warsaw where a a uh, astronomer by the name of Brandon Carter uh, made, uh, basically gave a talk in which he made a simple point. He says, we must be prepared to take account of the fact that our location in the universe is necessarily privileged to the extent that, uh, of being compatible with our uh, existence as observers. This is a very modest statement. It just says the fact that we live must mean that the universe is compatible with life, <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't be here. But then he goes on and makes a stronger statement. He says, actually, the universe, and hence the fundamental parameters in which it depends, must be as to admit the creation of observers um, at some stage. So what Carter is saying is, number one, we observe that we are in a universe that's compatible with us, and number two, and, and then the second one is, what if, in fact, there is some law that says the universe must be compatible with us? Once you say must be, some, somebody's going to have to enforce that law. And, and so it's a, it's a, that's called the strong anthropic principle. Anthropos means man. So anthropic principle is this name to this weird observation, and weird only to the eyes, not of cre creationists like us, but to those who deny that the world is created. They then get surprised that everything seems to be extremely well matched for us. I wanted to say uh, one other thing before I go uh, to the difference between WAP and SAP, uh, weak anthropic principle and strong anthropic principle, and that is this. Remember two weeks ago, or two times ago, yeah, we were talking about astronomy, and we said, what are the conditions for habitability, what are the conditions for a planet to support life, and all of that. When we were doing that, we were saying, we'll just take the universe the way it is and just say, in this universe, the way it is, where do you find the good habitat? What do you need? You need an Earth-like planet, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so we said all that. This one takes a step farther back and says, what kind of a universe do you need? And so what kind of laws does the universe need to have? So we're going to go really peeling deep back into this. And this subject is very deep. Unfortunately, math, there's a ton of math and physics. and so. Um, we're not going to do math, 
but it, is, uh, it just gets a little more complicated. But basically, the weak anthropic principle works within the frame of the, work of the universe and asks, why here, why now? Uh, and, and, but the strong anthropic universe says, why this universe with these laws? And so that's the way it is set up. Um, that the universe would be suitable is not surprising. That it would be privileged should give us some thought. Uh, you know, if it's privileged, then is it designed? You know, is it, uh, or is it privileged at all? This problem is called fine-tuning. And, and we'll go into this in much more detail, but basically the idea of fine-tuning is if you are tuning for a radio station, you have an adjustment that you can make of the frequency at which you're going to be listening. And, and you adjust that thing, and you go a little bit this way, and you get static, and you get that go away, that way you get static, and when you get it just right, you hear the radio station well. Well, it turns out that people have been looking at the way that, that, that the laws of physics have been set up, and there seems to be a great deal of fine-tuning, as we will, uh, we will uh, see soon. So when you see uh, something that looks fine-tuning, you would then have to ask the question, is this, is this a likely thing? If it's likely, then it could be by chance. Like, let's say that we find that we talk about, um, oh, I don't know, the speed of light. And we say, well, if the speed of light was 10 times less, it would still be OK. And if it was 10 times more, it would still be OK. If it was a, you know, 1,000 times less, it would still be OK, because this is how things would work. Or if a 1,000 times greater, it would still be OK, because this is how things would work. But they would work. It turns out, though, every time you ask this question of a physical constant, the moment you go a little bit off of it, everything breaks apart. And, and so everything seems to be on a knife's edge. So, so we're going to ask the question, is the universe uh, fine-tuned? And before that, we kind of want to talk about what you know, essentially the physics, uh, physicist's picture of the world is. The physicist's picture of the world talks about the, the universe in itself being characterized by one thing, first of all, called space-time space and time together, space-time. And, and this is just you know, spatial dimensions and time dimension. But under Einstein's theory of relativity, these things are intertwined. When you go through a lot of space in a short amount of time, the clock starts ticking differently for you than other people. And, and when you have matter in a, in a location, the space and time actually bend, and the way time goes on is different. And these are the things that physicists uh, work on. Physics also is characterized by discussion of matter, just you know, matter exists, and the forces and interactions between matter. How do pieces of matter interact together? And, and uh, so that all becomes part of uh, the description that, that physics wants to give. In terms of matter, uh, we, we all have heard that everything is made out of molecules and atoms. And then we heard that the atom has the nucleus in it. And then the nucleus uh, has protons and neutrons. And around the nucleus are these electrons. We, we've all heard that. It turns out that, in fact, you have to peel that onion at least one more layer. The protons themselves are made out of things like called quarks. These quarks basically are, at this point, nobody knows that they, anything that is more primitive than a quark. The quark is the fundamental elementary particle that goes into protons and neutrons. In addition, there are other particles called uh, leptons, lept for light, uh, lightweight. And electron is the first lepton. Then there is a muon uh, and a tau on, a tau, a tau particle. 
Then there are the, the neutral particles that are almost mass, massless. And uh, back when the particle physicists were discovering these things, there's a very famous Italian uh, physicist uh, named Enrico Fermi, who was in, in Chicago. And uh, he, they were talking about this, and this guy is like trying to explain it, and he forgot the, you know, what this little guy was. He said, uh, you know, in his Italian, he says, uh, what that, that neutral one, that bambino neutron, neutrino. So that became the name of the, the particle. It's called the neutrino. It's the bambino neutron. It's just a little bitty neutron. Uh, but it's not really a neutron. It's actually a, a very interesting particle itself. Uh, it can go through all of the Earth and not interact with anything. It just goes through everything. Uh, it's, uh... All right. So um, we talked about matter, and now we talk about forces. So we're kind of laying a little bit of groundwork before we dive in. So the fundamental forces, we all know about gravity. Gravity is, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the function of gravity is to give us stellar formation and planet formation and the nuclear furnaces in the stars. And that we can discuss in a little bit. But gravity, we, we can see why we need gravity. Electromagnetism gives us atoms and molecules and chemical reactions. It gives us light. The, all of that is part of electromagnetic interactions. So matter interacts with matter through gravitational pull. So this water cup and this uh, uh, little remote control actually have gravitational forces on each other. This remote control and a pebble on the other side of the moon also have a gravitational force relative to each other. So everything is exerting a gravitational force against everything. And that's just the way gravity works. It's very long distance and everything. Electromagnetism, we talked about. There are two other forces that work inside the nucleus. One is called the weak nuclear force, and the other is called the strong nuclear force. The, and we'll talk about what these do. They're very important. When we talk about fine-tuning, we, we have to kind of consider the different aspects of fine-tuning. Uh, suppose you give a physics problem. Now, those of you who've taken physics, you might have a problem like, what does it take to put a satellite into a particular orbit, an orbit of 700 miles around the Earth? Okay, solve the problem. And, and so you first start with the formula, which is the, uh, the equation for gravitational attraction, the force between uh, two particles of mass m1 and m2 that are distance r from each other is inversely proportional to how far they are. So if you double the distance, it's four times smaller. And then there's a proportionality constant. This is the fudge factor that makes the strength the right number. That's called the constant of, uh, of gravity. And so, so you have the equation. You have the, essentially the law. But the law comes with its own constant. It's the physical constant that gives you the strength of this force compared to other forces. And in a given pro problem, you have to also inject the scenario. Oh, a rocket starts from the Earth with a speed of 10 kilometers per second. How far does it go? Blah, 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 before it turns around. So that's, the, that's sort of the initial conditions. And finally, the, the prediction comes from, from doing that. So we've got the law, we've got the constants, and we've got the initial conditions. Those are all parts of describing physical systems. All right. Now, they, the, the most fundamental initial condition is that there was a creation event. Now, if you went back 100 years ago, or 115 years ago, uh, almost uniformly, all the scientific community believed that the universe was eternal. Not that God exists and is eternal, but the universe exists and is eternal, and therefore no need for God. Okay. 
So, so the idea that the universe would actually have a beginning was very, very violently opposed, you know, uh, uh, confronting their worldview. So when the first results came from first Einstein's theory and then Hubble's observation of the expanding universe and then the cosmic microwave background in the 60s and then the, uh, the observations by uh, satellites in the 90s that the universe indeed had a creation event. This story is a big story. It's a, it's a whole other talk that I didn't have time to put in this series. But it's an amazing story of the evidence in the universe basically points to a creation event and, and mankind, in rebellion, constantly wants to look the other way. But, but it's, it's inevitable. And in fact, the term Big Bang is a derogatory term that, that Fred Hoyle gave to this thing because he didn't like the, the idea that, that the universe would have a beginning. It's quite a, kind of a funny story, actually, uh, talking about that. So, so just think of the Big Bang as the creation event. That is just a name that others have given to what we would call the creation event. And there is a definite point at which the universe started because God called it into being at that definite point. So now uh, we said that the, for fine tuning, when we talk about fine tuning, we talk about the laws of nature, the constants of nature, and the initial conditions. So let's talk about the laws of nature. First of all, there are four forces that fundamentally give all the interactions that we know of. The, the gravity, we talked about uh, what its importance is. The it's the gravitational attraction that causes uh, you know, matter to come together. And when they come together, they, uh, they become energetic and they heat up. And actually, when they do that enough, nuclear fusion takes place and stars get, essentially get fueled up. They get fueled up by the initial sort of bringing together of nuclei under, under the tremendous accumulative force of gravity. All right, um, the other thing is that, just to kind of that, uh, observe is that because of that, the, without gravity, then you can't have stellar formation, planet formation, or life. You need gravity, absolutely. Electromagnetism talks about molecular and atomic attraction. The fact that the electron exists around the, the nucleus is uh, coming from the electromagnetic attra attraction between the electron and the nucleus. And, and so without electromagnetism, you wouldn't have atoms and you wouldn't have molecules, you couldn't have life. So you need a type of force that puts together uh, atoms and allows atom to atom to, to, uh, to, to kind of stay together in what's called molecules. And that's because of the electrical attraction between the electrons of this atom and the nucleus of that atom and vice versa. And that kind of holds them together. And so you need electromagnetism for that. The strong nuclear force uh, it's not too hard to see why you need that. The, the force between two protons uh, is repulsive. As I bring them together, that force becomes tremendously large, uh, the, the repulsive force. So the immediate question is, why don't we all spontaneously blow up? What is holding our nuclei together? If the electromagnetic force is repulsive between proton and proton, what holds it? Well, it turns out there is a force that God created called the strong nuclear force that at large distances doesn't do anything. But as soon as you come inside of a certain distance scale, it suddenly becomes super strong and super uh, attractive. And it overwhelms the, uh, the electromagnetic repulsion of proton to proton and holds the nucleus to get together. So if we had no strong force, we would have no life. 
There is another force called the weak nuclear force, and that's the fourth and final kind of force that we know of. The weak nuclear force has a very important feature that it changes the flavor of, of matter. By flavor, I mean we talked about quarks, and I didn't dwell on it very much, but quarks come in different flavors, uh, up, down, charm, strange, top, bottom. It's weird names to four, kind of six species of quarks. These species are immutable except for electro, uh, the electroweak, the weak interaction. The weak force and the, uh, basically is a force that can change the, the species of a quark to a different quark and turns a proton to a neutron. This is important because in the early universe, uh, when the creation event first occurred, it was all protons. And had it not been for the weak force, nothing, none of these protons would turn into neutrons. And if you don't have these neutrons, you can't build stable, uh, stable nuclei. And so the weak force is necessary to make nuclei and heavy elements of which we're all made. The, the weak force is also responsible for, for radioactive decay. And that radioactive decay inside the Earth produces the geothermal heating that causes us to have a liquid iron core that spins, which produces that magnetosphere, which two weeks ago we said protects us from harmful radiation. So the electroweak force actually comes in as a protective force. All right, so these were just the four fundamental forces, gravity, electromagnetism, strong force, weak force. And now the physical constants. And um, so we can go back and ask the question, what would happen if gravity was weaker? What would happen if gravity was weaker? And it turns out, to, to talk about that, we have to talk about like, how uh, stars, basically, are operating. And first, I mentioned that you know, when, when matter was first created, matter then is, is, is kind of streaming out. And eventually, it, the gravitational attraction brings, brings matter back into clumps together. As they come back together, they become very energetic. And eventually, nuclei come close enough to fuse, and it, the ignition occurs for the nuclear furnaces that are inside the stars, that gives us the stars the way they're working. When, when that fusion occurs, the photons that are the light particles that come out of it are so energetic that if, if our star was just giving us those photons, we would all just burn to a crisp instantly, and that would be it. There would be no photosynthesis. There would be nothing. We'd just all uh, be pulverized by gamma radiation. What happens instead is that uh, the, these photons immediately interact with electrons inside the sun and, and impart their energy to the matter inside the sun, and they get weaker and weaker, yet generation after generation of photons. By the time the thing that comes out of our sun uh, is out and is on its way to us, it's peaking in the green, it's, it's at about half a micron wavelength, and it's perfect for carbon chemistry. It's perfect for photosynthesis. It's perfect for life. If our, if our universe had a weaker gravity, you couldn't get stars until you had much more mass. Because we, gravity is weaker, so you need more mass, or so you have more material before you can cause that nuclear ignition. By the time you've put that much material together, that it, that those photons that are coming out are not slowed down to a level that's good for us. It's actually too slowed down. They're just kind of enough to warm us up, but there's not enough to allow carbon chemistry to work. So a weaker gravity is inconsistent with uh, life and photosynthesis. 
Similarly, a stronger gravity has got the other problem. A stronger gravity means that as soon as a small amount of matter comes, you know, is near each other, they collapse, they ignite, they make the star, and that stuff doesn't have any opportunity. They, the photons from, from the nuclear ignition have no opportunity to, to get de-energized, and so they, that's where we get, we get burned to a crisp. So stronger gravity is bad. That way, also what happens is that in a stronger gravity, uh, uh, everything turns into a star and everything burns up in a matter of a few years, and that's it, no more stars. <laughs> everything goes dark. And so stronger gravity. And it turns out people have done numerical and you know, calculations of how much, uh, how much can you uh, uh, tweak the, the strength of the, the, the gravity. Gravity is 10 to the 40 power weaker than the strong force. If it was merely 10 to the negative 35, you know, 10 to the 35 weaker than the strong force, all of these bad things would happen. So, so gravity has to stay down there at a very, very tiny level before, you know, or otherwise, basically, it would be devastating for life. The strong force itself is also fine-tuned. It turns out that if you make the strong force weaker by 8%, that means that the, the, the activity of the strong force is weaker by 8%, it would make uh, deuterium unstable, and so you couldn't have uh, heavier elements than just protons and hydrogen. So making it weaker would, would be very, very bad. And then if you make it stronger by just 10 or 12%, protons now can just bind to each other, make diprotons. And diprotons uh, then would ignite nuclear furnaces very quickly, and everything would be over very, very quickly, and, and there would be no universe as we know it. An interesting story in the middle of all this is the fine-tuning, an example of, there are so many of these that I'm, you know, I'm just touching on a few, but an example of, of fine-tuning that's pretty spectacular is this thing called the triple alpha process. And it's a little bit kind of a fancy story. I'm gonna to try to say it kind of uh, in a simple way. Um, in the 1950s, uh, physicists were trying to figure out how nuclear uh, reactions are working inside of stars. And how did it come about that these elements are heavier than, uh, you know, in this picture of the universe, at first it's, it's just light, then it's just the most primitive matter, then this matter aggregates inside of stars, and in the stars, in the nuclear furnace of the stars is where the heavier elements are created. So that, so that the, the stuff that we're made of is the product of generations of, new, of stellar reactions inside of the stars. These stars kind of churn and do this. They explode and spew all of this heavy element to the, to the world, to the universe around them. That stuff re-aggregates re and makes new stars that work with different reactions that take those elements and make heavier elements still. And so over a very large amount of time, these generations of stellar explosions actually provide the basic materials of life on Earth. And then it's possible, you know, it, the material is there for, for our bodies to essentially get, get made. And so one of the questions was, how has it happened that carbon exists at all? It turns out that when you bring together an alpha particle, which is two, part, two protons and two neutrons, and another alpha particle, two protons and two neutrons, if they collide, you would expect to get four and four, four, uh, four protons and four neutrons, uh, which is beryllium. And 
the problem is that it turns out that the beryllium you make that way lasts, lasts very, very short amount of time. And so to make carbon, you need a third alpha particle to hit it just while it is, it is just barely holding together. And the, the problem was that every calculation showed that that beryllium just doesn't last more than a femtosecond. And that's not long enough in these nuclear reactions to occur. So Fred Hoyle said, well, for this to work at all, carbon must have a mode in which it has, a, it has the ability to exist in a form just like when in this unstable state, these this three alpha particles come together. In other words, the unstable beryllium and the, uh, and the extra alpha particle. And so he said there must be a resonant state of carbon right at the right level to make this happen. And, and then nobody knew of it. And so Hoyle, for years, was asking people doing nuclear physics to look for this unstable, the, the metastable state of carbon. And, and they discovered it. And so uh, it was one of those situations where uh, one nucleus has, has a, a energy state that allows this other nucleus, when they come together, uh, to, to essentially make this one. It turns out then, if you had the same thing at the next level, from carbon to oxygen, then all the carbon would also turn into oxygen. But that turns out not to be the case. Uh, that, that the oxygen level doesn't exist at a level that, that allows this to happen. And so, so you end up with a lot of carbon, but not a lot of oxygen. And so, so carbon formation actually occurs. So, so these are, um, <clears throat> so we talked a little bit about the, the laws, the physical constants, and now we'll touch on the initial conditions. And I talked about the, uh, the creation event, and it was, like I said, it was one of the most controversial things in astronomy in 20th century, what that, that there was a creation event. And the current estimate of, of the theories that basically posit the creation event is that it occurred about 13 and a half billion years ago. And it turns out that this long period of time, the 13 and a half billion years, ends up being very problematic from a naturalistic point of view. And I'll explain why. One is that the, um, it turns out you can ask the question, uh, what should the energy density of the initial universe have been so that the universe would not either come apart very quickly or that it wouldn't, after going out, uh, collapse very quickly. If the initial amount of matter and energy in the universe is too much, the, everything comes out and then after a while slows down and collapses in on, of itself, in on itself very quickly and the universe ceases to exist, essentially, as we know it. On the other hand, if it's too little, it, it basically Goes, flies apart too quickly for stars and galaxies to form. And so it turns out you can ask a question numerically of what, how much, what value is good? What's the right value? Because we find ourselves in a universe where everything is just a, what's called a flat universe, just right for a long universe to, to exist healthy for a long time. And, and just to kind of get the idea, here's a number, right? The one nanosecond after the, the Big Bang, the density in grams per cc, if, if it is 447, 225, 917-218, 507-401, 284.016, it's good. It's, if it's all of those numbers, but that 016 at the end is, um, 
uh, 016.0, it's good. If it's 016.2, it's bad. If it's 015.8, it's death. And so this is when people talk about fine tuning, look at all those digits you have to basically to, to, to get. This happens because the universe is old, because it's, the things become so unstable that the wait, you wait too long and, and everything wants to collapse or everything wants to go apart. And so for it to be good now, 13 year, million, billion years later, everything had to have been just dialed in exceedingly, exceedingly well. There's another thing that is uh, even more spectacular than this. This is the fine tuning of what's called entropy. Some years ago, a physicist by the name of Roger Pendros calculated, uh, you know, made the observation that when you look at the universe at the grandest scale, everything is spread out kind of evenly, which should be hugely surprising, it turns out. Because if you are waiting this long, matter, if matter would, uh, just from the fact that once you make clumps, it kind of snowballs, you make bigger clumps, that the universe by now should be just very, very, very clumpy. In other words, once you get matter aggregating, it should all be, um, it should all be uh, compressing into little black holes everywhere and no spreading of matter. It's this spreading that allows a, uh, basically energy to flow and work to be possible in the universe. And so what is the probability, Penrose said, uh, of having this level of, of organization in the universe, in this level of evenness in the universe? And, and if you looked at the ways that, that the original uh, atoms in the universe had to be arranged, what is the probability to get it just right like this? And his calculation that, that basically is everybody quotes this, and it's a crazy number. It's the chance is 1 in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. So if you write those, you know, that number with zeros and you take you know, a 10-point font, you, could, you would not be able to fit those letters you know, you know, written on paper in the, in the known universe. That's, it's just a crazy number. Uh, and that the universe was made with this staggering level of, 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 of uh, fine-tuning so that it would thrive for a very long time. There is another one that is called the cosmological constant fine-tuning, and this is this thing that is now called, related to what is called dark energy, and that the, uh, it turns again, uh, out, turns out that the universe that was discovered in 1998 that the expanding universe is actually accelerating a tiny, tiny bit. And that has become sort of the biggest, one of the biggest challenges in physics and cosmology right now is what is causing this thing to expand. We give it a name, we call it dark energy, but in fact that is just a name for something we have no idea what it is. The only thing in the, law, in the laws of physics that can produce that is something called the cosmological constant part of, um, Einstein's theory of gravity. And, but nobody knows what would create that constant. What, would, what feature of the universe would create it? And the only known feature in the universe that could create it gives you an answer that is wrong by a factor of 10 to the 120th power. So if quantum field theory is true, something else must be there that is canceling almost all of that except one part in 10 to the 120. And that's just a staggering, again, level of fine tuning. What does this point to? It points to probably a combination of things. Uh, number one is 
that um, <clears throat> the universe is obviously very fine-tuned in many features. It is also shows the incompleteness of our knowledge because we are, you know, in, like this, this cosmological constant uh, is, is basically showing that something is seriously missing in the way we're, um, uh, we're looking uh, at the universe. So on this question of fine-tuning, if you talk to a secular scientist, you know, a physicist, Nobody would disagree that the universe is fine-tuned. Every physicist knows that the universe is highly, highly fine-tuned. But then what do people make of it? You know, by the way, I'll just tell you a story. I was at Cornell as a uh, postdoc, <clears throat> and you would, they would have weekly colloquium. This was in the 90s. And I had never heard of fine-tuning, nothing like that. Um, but somebody from the Soviet Union was coming, uh, named Okun, giving a talk on, on cost, constants of nature. And I didn't know exactly what that was, but I went to the colloquium. And this guy, who I'm sure was an atheist, you know, sat there on a board and you know, basically just told us one thing after another that is incredibly fine-toned. And that every time you try a different number, everything just goes apart. And at the end, he goes, well, so what do we do with this? And it's like, now I'm at the edge of my seat. So what are you going to say you're going to do with this? And he said, I don't know. Maybe there's a lot of universes. And that was the way he ended the talk. I was like, oh. Um, but you could tell that you know, we're onto something. Okay. So in fact, I'm going to um, <clears throat> give three kinds of answers that people give in response to this. The first one is, of course things are fine-tuned. Uh, if it wasn't, we wouldn't be here. Uh, you know, they have to be right for us. We wouldn't be here. But, but that answers the wrong question. And I sort of made up this story. It's a little hokey. But imagine you're at the countryside, and you see this beautiful biplane, and it's actually doing aerobatics. And suddenly, somebody falls off of the plane and just comes, plummets right down. And behind some trees, they vanish. You run. You go over there behind the trees. And he comes up, and he's getting the straws off of his body. And he says, you say, I can't believe this. And he says, no, no, straws do have the ability to slow you down. Well, that's the wrong question. I can't believe you fell right on the straw. How did it, of all the places you could have fallen, you fell right on the straw? So when people say, of course, you know, if everything is fine-tuned, we would live, that's answering the wrong question. The right question is, why is everything fine-tuned? How did it happen that everything is just right? And so, so that's sort of the first kind of explanation. The second one is the one I mentioned, that people will say, well, there may be a multiverse, a uni multiple universes. Now, that is a very interesting uh, thing. In, in this case, the idea is that there are an infinity of universes that are being created that are, uh, and, and we happen to be in, in the right one. Of course, by there, by the word created, I meant by the laws of physics, because it, somebody who believes in creation would probably not come up with this. So you're trying to say, why is it so improbable? You say, well, there's an, a lot of other universes. We're just in one of them. But look what you've done. You wanted to do away with the created universe, with a creator, and you want to do away with your you know, dislike of superstition and metaphysics and all of that. So you invoke a thing called a multiverse, which you cannot possibly measure. You have gone outside the realm of measurement to the realm of speculation to avoid what you used to call speculation. You see, so the multiverse actually never solves their problem. They are now positing something. You know, whatever else could have been said for old-fashioned old uh, atheism, it was claiming to be based on the evidence. 
But now they say, well, there's no evidence, but I must be there. And that then you, they, they have almost no, no branch to sit on, basically. That, that's, it's, there's other problems with this. If you are a, uh, a multiverse proponent who is a materialist, you're typically a reductionist as well. And if you're a reductionist, you think that our minds are just brains with no other aspect to our, our consciousness. They're just electrons moving you know, in a chemical situation. Well, somebody by the name of Boltzmann in the early 20th century thought, well, if that's all the brain is, and if there is lots of universe, would be lots of universe, well, it's a lot more likely that, that in one universe you would get a, just a brain, no body, no nothing, and in an instant there's just a brain, why bother building the rest of the universe? So that from my standpoint, from my standpoint, uh, what if I'm just a brain? My hands don't exist, you guys don't exist. The fact that I'm giving this talk doesn't exist. And, it's, and if you actually work out the implications in an infinite number of universes, the if you work with probability and if the mind is not real but it's all just you know, what's brain doing, electrical, well, the chance of making a brain is a far, far higher than making a whole bothering with a whole universe. So in other words, every conscious being should much more believe that they're just a brain floating in a, one of the instances of the universe than the rest of the universe exists. Well, this obviously is just violates you know, multiple problems. So this is called the Boltzmann brain, brain problem. And the Boltzmann brain problem is that if a multiverse exists, the fact that then it posits that there is nothing other than Boltzmann brains when there are anything in these universes violates our obvious intuition that other things do exist. We all exist. In fact, we're doing physics you know, about these other things that exist. So, so the uh, multiverse has, has very serious problems. And in fact, I don't think you know, it would be fair to say that there are major, major objections even within the materialist uh, community uh, on the multiverse. A third ex explanation is that the universe was created. A universe that, that exquisite fine-tuning is not surprising for a created universe. And, and exquisite fine-tuning, just like we saw in other areas, uh, you know, it not only shows the majesty of the creator, but it shows basically that he, he cares for us. In Psalm 8 it says, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you've made, you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And that when we, when we look at the fine-tuning, it causes us no trouble because we, we fully expect that our creator is, is, is willing to do that for us and willing to do that for his own glory. This fine-tuning not only shows his love for us, but his own glory, both of which are consistent from what we know of him through his word. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh.